Welcome to episode 107 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, the author of The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. <sighs> uh, that is a very long subtitle, Adam. Uh, uh, that is Adam Siegel, uh, who is the author of uh, a book that is almost as long as its subtitle. <laughs> uh, Richard, Richard Haas made the same complaint the other day when he did the book party at the council. <laughs> well, that's because you started thinking you're just going to announce it, uh, and then you start running out of breath about halfway through the subtitle. Uh, all right. Uh, Adam is the uh, Morris Greenberg uh, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, author of numerous books, including this one, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the Council's uh, expert on China. So we'll be spending some time talking about what the world order on cyber- in cyberspace looks like uh, from Beijing. Uh, so welcome, Adam. Uh, uh, and uh, we're also joined today by some of our regulars. Um, Alan Cohn, uh, formerly head of strategy at the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the number two at the policy uh, uh, office there now of Council to Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, by Maury Shank, uh, our uh, Steptoe's All Everything in London, uh, uh, advisor on European technology and cybersecurity, formerly the managing partner of the office, uh, and uh, a private equity investor and director of technology companies. So, Maury, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and the Department of Homeland Security and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. I am determined not to talk about Apple versus FBI right away. Uh, so instead, I'll talk about another of my hobby horses, uh, which is the Google right to be forgotten, where we had a Spanish court decision that... Sounds like it means something, but probably, if I'm reading it right, not much. Uh, is that is that fair, Maury? Yeah, I agree with that. When the ECJ decided the right to be forgotten case in 2014, Google had said, you don't have jurisdiction over Google Inc., which is the search engine in Spain because they're a Spanish company just sells advertising. And they said, no, we've got jurisdiction because you have a company in Spain, even though you're not here. Now the Spanish courts have rejected a right-to-be-forgotten request to the Spanish advertising companies saying, in fact, uh, you've got to direct it to Google Inc. But that's really not such a big deal for Google because Google has pretty much accepted this decision and has put up web pages um, where people can make those requests directly. So I think people will just listen to the Spanish court and make the request to Google in the U.S. So the the... The outcome is Google Inc. is subject to the court's jurisdiction, maybe in part because it's doing business through its advertising company, but uh, this is just a paperwork uh, exercise, it sounds like, saying uh, you have to direct them to the company that actually handles the data, and don't worry, we've got jurisdiction over them because they sell advertising here through this separate subsidiary. Is that the, the, the gist of it? Yes, uh, jurisdiction sometimes matters, but in this case, it's sort of a formal jurisdiction issue without substantive effect. All right. Well, that uh, 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 that uh, saves me from having to uh, uh, 
put the entire decision into Google Translate and trying to figure out what it means. Uh, uh, so now we're uh, having demonstrated our willingness to postpone uh, um, uh, gratification. Let's talk about Apple. Uh, I, uh, because the president's talking about Apple. I, uh, he went to South By. Uh, he opened for me. I was at South By the day after. Uh, and uh, he was all, you know, Mr. Techie and come work for us and help us make government better. And then at the very end, somebody says, yeah, what about Apple versus FBI? And he kind of, to the astonishment of the crowd and maybe some members of the administration, he, he said, I'm basically with the FBI. What uh, I want to, uh, here is to avoid fetishization of the I f- of our phones, they're not any different from the other places we put information, and they shouldn't be permanently uh, off limits to law enforcement, and we need to figure out a way to solve the problem, uh, uh, which is not the message that anybody in Techland wanted to hear, right? uh, but I thought it was very interesting. Uh, I, it's got to be what he thinks, because I'm confident there are plenty of people who told him not to say that in the administration. Well, I think that there are probably a lot of people who told them really not to say much of anything in the administration. And uh, I, I think probably you can't really tell a president in the last year of their term not to what do not that. What not to do? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. uh, but it was very interesting that after calling for um, balance uh, and not taking an absolutist view, he did seem to weigh in pretty heavily on on one side of, of the debate. Yeah, so – I think it's it's worth pointing out that what Apple has been doing, kind of sub silentio, is moving the goalposts here. If you had said six months ago, uh, is it a compromise to say if you design a system that no one can get into, you can sell it, no problem. Uh, we're not going to require a back door. But if you can get in and it's not too much trouble, uh, you have to help law enforcement. Everybody would have said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a reasonable compromise. And now Apple is saying, oh, no, no, we can get in, but it would be it would be so bad for our business or something. Uh, and uh, uh, that position is now viewed as the position from which compromise has to be uh, uh, addressed. Well, I think it's also kind of a testament to the creativity of the FBI because I think that Apple did think it took the former position. I think it, it kind of started to telegraph its position with the um, with the case in Brooklyn that no more uh, uh you know on this and and we are going we we do believe we've reached that point where we've designed the system nobody gets in and that's kind of and, it and, and and you know you're you're right in that sense that they said no one gets in as long as the code remains pristine of course we've built in a back door well, there's just no doubt there's a back door and it is there for apple and apple uses it to send stuff that i have well if i had an iPhone. Uh, I have no comp- control over at all. They just send it to me, and I'm stuck with it. Uh, and if they decided to uh, uh, to listen to my conversations, they of course they'd tell me that, uh, uh, and I'd get to check I agree before that happened. But basically, um, it, they have built access into this, I, and I, I, I I've been surprised that this point seems hard for a lot of people to grasp. There is a mechanism for getting into this. It is the code update mechanism. Um, and 
Apple can use it whenever they want. And and given that, uh, uh, the only question is, well, how hard is it for Apple to use that to facilitate a... Uh, um, uh, uh, access by the government. And it's interesting. I don't think Apple makes, uh, Apple is careful not to make the statement that you can't get in. No, they admit they, they can. They are, you know, the, the argument very much rests on the, what are you telling us we have to put into it? Um, and, you know, and I think they did learn their lesson with trying to put like a semi-lousy U2 song into, uh, in, in at, at one I hear point. people are still trying to get that damn thing out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but it was interesting to see, uh, you know, and, and there's a couple of. It, it, unfortunately, I, I had like five points for Apple versus FBI for for this week, but there was a couple of a uh, couple of things that seemed to to try to accentuate this point of it matters less that they can get in and more what you're trying to put in, um, and trying to accentuate that in a couple of different ways. So, but you know, their notion is. This is a, a derogation from our secure system. And we ought to, uh, and therefore, if it escaped, it would be bad. But the answer to that is the same answer that I gave to the first point. You've already built in a backdoor that allows you to go in. If you let go of that, if that is compromised, people will be able to add any damn code they want to any iPhone. Uh, and and so it doesn't really matter whether there is some code floating out there that allows you to uh, avoid the uh, 10 strikes rule. Uh, you can just say, hey, here's an update. It'll, it'll, it'll conference me in on all your phone calls. Uh, and uh, it, it, Apple has never quite owned up to the fact that the real security Risk here is to their particular is is their their update capability. That's interesting. It kind of it takes the FBI's creative arguments about here are all the steps I want to take, and essentially, I mean, the way that you framed it crystallizes it as you have escrowed the keys. Now yeah. here are the steps I want you to take, you know, I, to make use of those keys. I think that's right. And when they say, "Oh, well, it would be terrible if it escaped," well, the answer is, don't let your signing code for updates ever escape. If you don't allow that to happen, none of the bad things that you're predicting will happen. And so you have created the risk. You have created the opportunity for the FBI. And now you're saying, yeah, but we didn't really build that for you. We built it for us. And I, you know, kind of say, well, who the hell are you? <laughs> All right. What about the argument that people have made that if you, uh, that a defense lawyer would require Apple to show the code in court uh, including this update mechanism, right? Because any evidence that would be submitted, they would say, well, how was it, you know, how, how, how could we prove that it was, um, you know, true and came from this phone? And said, so by nature, they would lose control of it, which would, which would include your update part of it, wouldn't it? Well, if that's the case, then they're, they've done a very stupid thing because sooner or later, there's going to be a lawsuit about an improper update, maybe the one that installed the U2 uh, 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 song, uh, and the lawyer on the other side is, is going to say, well, I think you, you, you broke my phone, and I want to see exactly the code that you used to update my phone. Um, that argument's always going to be possible with or without the FBI, but I think the answer uh, that the FBI would offer, uh, just as Apple would offer it, is the Value, evidentiary value of disclosing that is minimal to nothing. And the, 
uh, consequences of disclosing that are so disastrous that uh, we shouldn't be required to do that. But if worse came to worse, what they would do is they would say, give us a month and then we'll disclose it. And they would send everybody an update that says, hey, you know that uh, uh, signing key we were using? Forget it. We're going to use another one. Uh, and then they would disclose the old signing key. Uh, uh, they could certainly do that if they if they were really pushed into it. Uh, but there's no reason to believe that any judge would actually require them to do something as dumb as that. And you know, uh, let's let's cross that bridge when the when the time comes. So that that that's that's my thought. I one what Adam uh, uh, raised this uh, uh, comment, and I thought Adam would I'd like to get your thoughts on. Craig Federighi's affidavit. The Stuart, Buttle, or Stuart Baker rebuttal yes, affidavit? Yes, yes, it, yeah. it was meant to address the questions that I asked in my deposing Tim Cook uh, uh, post. Uh, and it's, it does a really bad job of it. You know, this is, uh, you know, if it were advertising, we'd say it's uh, a little misleading. If it were uh, a, uh, uh, an ordinary conversation, we'd say it was a lie. Uh, it, 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 here, it's it's very lawyerly affidavit speak because it's probably true. It just uh, if it's it, it true in the way in which I suspect, it doesn't answer the questions at all. So uh, I'll just read a couple of thoughts uh, statements. Apple has never made user data. This is in response to the argument that the iCloud was moved to China so the Chinese would have easier access. Apple has never made user, user data, whether stored on the iPhone or in the iCloud, more technologically accessible to any country's government. The key word there is technologically. They've made it very, very legally accessible to the Chinese government by, uh, uh, by moving it. Uh, so they're really saying, yeah, yeah, that, that, that entire iCloud incident, pay no attention to it because it wasn't about technological uh, uh, access. And Apple uses the same security protocols everywhere in the world. It is my understanding that Apple has never worked with any government agency from any country to create a backdoor in any of our products or services. Sounds like a complete response to the uh, accusation that they've already helped the Chinese uh, introduce a backdoor crypto uh, algorithm into uh, WAPI, uh, which is their version of Wi-Fi in China. But in fact... I think, since WAPI clearly is there and uh, uh, Apple clearly installed it, what they're really saying is, well, we never worked with any government. Uh, the government may have come up with the backdoor itself, and we might have installed it, but we didn't work with them. Uh, and so we're using the same security protocols. It's just that the Chinese are using a different one, and they've gotten us to put it in the phone. Now, it's a remarkably uh, logic-chopped statement. Uh, uh, and I wonder, right, uh, uh, Adam, whether uh, you have any insight into the extent to which Apple has uh, sort of sold out to the Chinese government in order to get what is now their biggest market. Well, I think I, I mean, I totally agree with you in, on the first point, right, that, that there's no doubt that, that Apple and other companies have to uh, cooperate with China on for legal measures, right? So if the Chinese government shows up and says we want this user's data. I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that uh, the iCloud or the whoever else they decrypt it and they and they give it to them. You know that that's the price for for doing business. 
I think on WAPI, I, I don't I don't know enough to to to. I think yours is a is is a uh, possible ar argument. It, it could be true. Um, what we know with w what happened with WAPI originally was when the Chinese introduced it and said, you know, we don't like the Wi-Fi standard. We don't think it's safe. Uh, we want you to work with these 11 Chinese companies to develop WAPI. Um, and you have to uh, engage in a kind of uh, technology sharing and, and open source kind of uh, sharing of, of uh, source code. And at the time, not going to do it. But he said, we're not going to do it. Uh, they balked. Uh, there was a letter written by um, Secretary Rice and um, others that said, we're going to take you to the WTO, and the Chinese backed down for a while. Um, then, you know, in the end, some companies went forward. So it is possible, as you said, that the Chinese companies in development with the Apple and the Chinese government put in a backdoor, uh, and it's accessible to the Chinese, and, and we just don't know about it. So I'm, I'm guessing that Apple didn't work to develop this. They were handed it. They said, here's a, here's a chip. You, you have to make sure your Wi-Fi chip includes WAPI. Um, and they were, the WAPI includes encryption protocols that are still classified under uh, Chinese law. So we have no idea how the encryption works. That is usually a recipe for security weakness. And in the case of the Chinese government, it is almost certainly uh, an indicator that there's a backdoor built in that they don't want anybody to find. Uh, um, and so uh, um, when Apple accepts that, they are accepting backdoored or very probably backdoored encryption uh, into their iPhone for every one of their iPhone users. And frankly, we don't even know, I suspect, which phones – uh, might contain this uh, backdoored encryption that are sold outside of China. Uh, I don't know what they sell in Hong Kong or Taiwan, uh, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if it uh, uh, included WAPI, uh, which means that uh, uh, the implications of this for people's security are pretty serious, and Apple's reticence is kind of troubling. The whole criticism of the WAPI process from the beginning was that you know, standards are supposed to emerge through companies developing in a transparent kind of way. And WAPI was the complete opposite. The Chinese government showed up and said, this is the new standard. Uh, nobody had any access to it, and they tried to force it through. So um, I think it it clearly is a, a you know, an opaque um, standard that would have all of the security risks you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I people occasionally people say, well, does that mean that you just are saying that uh, the FBI should be like the Chinese government and we should all uh, uh, have our security descend to whatever the Chinese government will allow? And that's not the argument at all. I think it's really a rebuttal to uh, Apple's principal claim, which is if we write this software and the ruling goes against us, uh, other repressive governments will demand that we cooperate. But uh, as WAPI shows, other repressive governments know quite well how to uh, get Apple to cooperate uh, on schemes that are substantially more uh, disastrous for security than uh, building the capability to uh, knock out the 10 strikes rule. Um, all right, uh, let's let's do quick hits on uh, uh, other developments. Uh, um, uh, Mori, uh, uh, other companies are starting to uh, uh, get press coverage for what they're uh, uh, they're doing on encryption. There's apparently a WhatsApp 
uh, encryption case where the government has a wiretap order and WhatsApp's encryption is preventing them from getting the content. Uh, and so they could potentially uh, pursue uh, uh, WhatsApp with a uh, Apple-style uh, effort, but they may actually find that it's harder for uh, WhatsApp to uh, enable a wiretap than it would be for Apple. Uh, and Microsoft says, you know, we store disk encryption keys for all our uh, companies' uh, computers, and nobody has asked us uh, from any government to decrypt a, a laptop. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, I, I think what these two stories say is the decisions on these things are going to come down to the details of the encryption architecture. And Microsoft has additionally said we wouldn't give over the key. But in both of these cases, it's um, much less problematic of creating a general backdoor, as Apple has argued in California. Microsoft, the keys relate to individual laptops. WhatsApp actually has built in a backdoor in that they can add people to a conversation, even if it's an encrypted conversation, so they can surreptitiously add law enforcement to a conversation, and it only relates to that conversation. Interesting. So okay. uh, so on both of those, I think it's more like the Judge Orenstein case with Apple in New York, where he said, well, you maybe you can't use the All Writs Act to force um, unlocking of an individual iPhone. These are ones that are much more narrow, that don't create a general backdoor. WhatsApp, there already is a general backdoor. Um, but how these things play out will depend upon individual architectures. Yeah, uh, that is interesting, and I, I, I actually more dangerous for WhatsApp to have th- that uh, uh, tool used uh, because it means that if you're in Brazil or someplace else, uh, you have to worry that the U.S. government will demand access to your conversations. Uh, uh, that's less of, that's less likely in the context of uh, the Apple case because, of course, um, uh, you have to have the phone before you you need this kind of tool from Apple. Uh, so uh, my guess is the, the FBI isn't going to want to bite off that uh, uh, fight until they've had a chance to chew and digest uh, Apple if, if they get to. Uh, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, other news. Um, the FBI raided Tversa. Uh, for those of you who are following this fight with uh, uh, over LabMD, it looks now, uh, you know, the FBI doesn't raid places unless they think there's been some serious uh, criminal activity there. And there was an accusation that Tversa was feeding people who didn't hire it to the FTC and getting them in trouble with the FTC. And, of course, LabMD is notoriously in trouble with the uh, uh, the FTC. Uh, I, I have to say this is deeply, deeply embarrassing to the FTC because it really puts them in the position, I, I was kind of thinking, what is, it's like they're the Hulk, Right, and and there's somebody who says, uh, if you don't do what I want, I'm I'm, I'm poke Bruce Banner here, uh, turn him into the Hulk, and he's just gonna rage around saying, yeah, uh, uh, privacy good, and uh, uh, lab and be bad, smash Hulk, smash, uh, and that's sort of what the FTC they sort of just ignorantly were played into acting as the enforcement arm for uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the scam that Tversa was running. If that's, I mean, that's certainly a story that is out there, and the question is, is it true? And this, this raid suggests that 
really may be true. And if that's the case, the FTC would be really smart just to say, oh, never mind. You know, we're really sorry we, we bothered you. Well, I, that's true. Um, if, in fact, that is what happened, uh, it may be a little bit too far down the road for them to cleanly be able to say, ah, sorry, we, we – uh, our error, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go back to our corner. But it does raise some really interesting questions about, you know, if you are in this business of uh, pointing out security flaws. You've got to be really careful. Really careful. You've got to be thinking a lot about consent. You've got to be thinking a lot about the language that you use in terms of reporting back to companies. You've got to be thinking very carefully about what you say, either what you say you're going to do or what you think, believe you are obligated to do. I, I think that's right. And I actually, I, I, I've given advice to clients in this area. And uh, they they understand, even the ones that haven't heard about the Diversa case, kind of understand that there's a line. And so you mostly you spend your time just saying, yeah, it's not just a good idea. You could get in serious legal trouble. Um, all right. Uh, and we're running a little late, so let me just uh, run through a couple more. Uh, uh, Home Depot settled uh, uh, its uh, enormous breach case. It was kind of a poster child along with Target for uh, big breaches. Uh, uh, and it settled it for... A sum that is exactly inside or at the bottom end of the Baker range for settling these cases. Uh, I used to, I said when I did did a study of several settlements that it was between fifty cents and two dollars for victims. The most that the victims here, including their lawyers, are going to get is fifty cents uh, per victim, and it's probably going to be closer to ten cents Uh, um, now. I'm sure Home Depot is going to get sued by the banks uh, as uh, uh, plaintiff's class action. But increasingly, this is looking as though um, these breaches are costing less and less as time goes on. Well, I think that's right. These, And it's another part of this trend away towards the idea that that personally identifiable information, um, personal financial information type breaches are low-end commoditized kind of been there, done that type of breaches. Um, uh, you know, what that augurs for what's coming next is... Uh, so here's what I think is coming next. Now, I, the, if, you're, if you're feeling sorry for the plaintiff's bar, right, uh, a, it turns out that the BBC and the New York Times, some of my favorite uh, media uh, uh, properties, uh, uh, served ads to people that allowed... Um, their entire systems to be encrypted uh, using ransomware, um, and the ad, it's, um, the the responsibility for the security of those ads. You didn't have to do anything. You just went there and and read the page, and the ad sent uh, jo- uh, uh, JavaScript to you that uh, looked for co- uh, uh, compromisable elements on your computer and started encrypting your stuff. Well, everybody who is a victim of this ransomware is going to know it for sure. It's going to cost them money for sure. Uh, and it won't be hard to figure out which site caused them to get this ransomware. And, you know, the plaintiff's bar wants to ser- do a real service to humanity. They should sue the BBC. They should sue the New York Times. They should sue the uh, the ad networks that supplied that uh, uh, because the damages there are staggering. And... Uh, 
uh, negligence is almost per se. You have just been waiting for an opportunity to point the plane of spar at the New York Times. Yes, I have. It's true. (laughs) Uh, So, guys, uh, call me. I'll I'll give you the rest of the the map for for liability there. Anything else that we ought to talk about? Uh, uh, There's a HIPAA. Penalize somebody basically for losing a laptop. Well, it's just another. It's a. It's a similar kind of case where uh, somebody either brings a laptop or other kind of records home. Yeah. Bad idea number one. Uh, they're not protected in a either in a physically in a lockbox or a computer through encryption. Bad idea number two. Um, and then that leads to the discovery that oh, the company doesn't really have very good security policies uh, at all. Um, and then you know on comes the uh, uh, the fine. So, and we just keep kind of seeing this over and over again. All right. Um, anything else? I think that pretty much covers it. We ought to move on to uh, Adam Segal and the hacked world order. Uh, so, Adam, when I, when I read this, your your book, uh, my first thought was John Perry Barlow, who in 1996 published the Declaration of Cyberspace Independence, uh, in which he said, I love this. He addressed himself to uh, governments around the world. You weary giants of meat and steel. Uh, you have no sovereignty where we, the cyberati, govern or gather. Uh, and I, I, I actually debated him uh, in the 90s. It was the beginning of my uh, uh, paid speaking career because he was... He was getting paid for the debate, and I wasn't. And I said, what? <laughs> and so they paid me. Uh, and uh, he, he's a delightful guy, uh, uh, but completely wrongheaded, I thought, at the time. Uh, and I, 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 I think in, a, in an odd way, uh, Adam, your book is a description of how uh, that declaration has held up over time. So how has it held up? Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, I actually, I, I, I had the quote in the book, um, but then I took it out because uh, one of the reviewers was like, this has been beaten up to death and, um, you know, who really believes it anymore anyway? But um, I, I think uh, if nobody believes on it, I, I saw the book as kind of the, the death knell that, you know, we were clearly in what I call year zero from June 2012 to June 2013 as it, it was clearly over, right? We had saw, we saw this massive uh, push from states uh, across the political spectrum of uh, asserting themselves in cyberspace um, and really putting the end to that utopian dream. So, given that you're now a cyberspace expert uh, and a China expert, um, the the theme of the book is there is a world order being built here. It just ain't the world order we envisioned. It's a world order in which the Chinese have a big say and a lot of countries have a big say. So let me, let's talk about this from the Chinese perspective. What, what kind of cyberspace world order did they actually want and how well are they doing in trying to bring it about? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese have been very, over the last two years, have been very assertive in promoting a vision that's very different uh, from the U.S., right? The U.S. Uh, view can be summed up uh, in part by the 2011 White House strategy that said uh, cyberspace or Internet that's uh, open, global, secure, and resilient. Um, and the Chinese have been talking about Internet or cyber sovereignty, 
which basically means that you know states should be allowed uh, to uh, govern their cyberspace based on their own history uh, and political needs. Uh, and of course, you're going to have um, rules and regulations that control and regulate cyberspace, just like every other sovereign territory. The way that they've done it is, you know, really from everything from from the chip and software uh, up to how you think about internet governance. So on the at the lowest level or the level of the machine, you know, we see them uh, competing with and trying to remove. Uh, Western technologies from their own um, internet uh, and cyberspace, um, and uh, increasingly export them to different markets. Uh, we see their controls on their own uh, internet, right? So the great firewall keeping information out, and then a, a massive system of censorship and control inside, and then a debate on um, internet governance that's focused on the states uh, and the use of cyber espionage and cyber attacks. Yeah, I, 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 that, all that makes sense to me. Uh, let's talk, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about is how they're actually exercising control inside China. Because, of course, um, one of the interesting things is in the 90s, everybody believed that um, this technology was had an automatic democratic bias, that, that it would force openness, it wouldn't be possible to prevent uh, data from reaching uh, uh, the citizens of China. Um, uh, several famous people said uh, things that looked dumber and dumber all the time uh, about that. Uh, um, it, but uh, uh, the Chinese have started to really do a remarkable job of uh having the benefits of internet style technology and nonetheless maintaining the social control that uh, the the uh, Beijing wants what do you think uh, apart from the uh, the great firewall what are the tools that are really working for the chinese yeah i mean there was that great quote from clinton right that uh, controlling the internet would be like nailing jello to the wall but it turns out that the chinese are pretty good at nailing jello to the wall i think they're really uh, but they're really good at persuading the jello to get on the damn wall and stay there <laughs> you know i i think um the you know the most effective tools seem to have been uh of course inter- intermediary liability right so all of the social media companies are responsible for what goes up so you force the companies um, to do the censorship and to, and to hire, you know, tens of thousands of people who monitor social welfare sites, uh, social media sites, um, and um, also increasingly, you know, a political campaign that is targeting uh, social media users uh, and threatens them with severe sanction. Right. So we saw uh, two years ago in the campaign against uh, the big V's. Right. These are um, legitimated users that have can have tens of millions of, of followers that once they passed regula- regulations that said, you know, if you uh, spread rumors uh, and they're retweeted 500 times, and then you're you could be jailed. So if you have you know 10 million uh, followers, the chances of something being retweeted 500 or 5,000 times is, is very high. So a lot of these guys. Uh, and women, they kind of public, they withdrew from from Weibo and other social media sites because they just didn't want to take the risk. 
Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense, and it's 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 sort of cleverly calibrated to allow ordinary people to just uh, um, say whatever they like because they're not going to get to 500 retweets. And it, and it also just um, you know what you really want the system to work on is self censorship, right? So if you don't know where the line is, uh, then you start just uh, not posting things or not talking about things because you're really worried about what's going to happen. So I I, I was struck. Uh, over the last few months by Baidu's role, which is, you know, we think of Baidu as one of the relative good guys uh, in China, uh, 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 a bunch of techies like us. Uh, but some of the things they have done have really strengthened the government's hands, like uh, 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 encryption, uh, SSL, TLS encryption, apparently is very rare there because if you... Uh, a, if your site uses HTTPS and TLS encryption, uh, then you just don't get on the search engine, uh, and so you don't get uh, any readers. So people automatically say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to have uh, uh, TLS certificates on my site. Is that You know, I, I, th- I think that's changed in the sense I, uh, I, I think Baidu is now saying they will be able to uh, – Crawl those sites, but I, I think it's a it's an important point, right? Because especially after just talking about Apple and WhatsApp and the kind of relationship between them and the U.S. government, uh, that you know Baidu and Alibaba and these other companies, they just they play a much different role in their relationship to to Beijing, and and it also goes back to your earlier point about how China thinks it can balance openness to the internet and the need for economic growth, and how do you maintain Social stability and regime, regime legitimacy. Because, you know, Chinese companies want to globalize. They want to have users, uh, abroad. Uh, and you have to imagine that Baidu's, uh, ownership and leadership is, is very torn by the sense that they know that they have to go along with the Chinese government for the domestic market. But if they move globally, they're going to have different requirements placed on them. And I think, um, you know, when we saw with the, the what was known as the Great Cannon attack, right? So the hijacking of Baidu's traffic to be used to knock off uh, websites on GitHub that were helping people avoid the Great Firewall. The leadership of, of Baidu must have been very, if they didn't know about it beforehand, must have been very annoyed because what it did for their international kind of uh, standards. Things, same thing, right? Jack Ma is playing such a large role in what's known as the Wujun Initiative, which is the Chinese efforts on global governance. Um, it's very hard for Chinese companies to, to balance the tensions between becoming global ones and what they do at home. Yeah. Um, I, I was struck by, I think it was uh, uh, Citizens Lab that did a uh, report on Baidu, which suggested that Baidu was playing this odd role in that, uh, one, on the one hand, they were actually enabling people to go to sites outside the firewall, uh, and at the same time, they were ensuring that records of all the sites that were visited anytime you had uh, a Baidu property uh, on your system, that that was all recorded and could be ex- accessed. Uh, uh, and so it, it, it's almost as though they're, they want to do both things. They want to have a reputation of helping people get outside the firewall, but at the same time they have to do a deal with the government to make sure the government isn't disadvantaged by that fact. Yeah, and, and look, the, the government may say, you know, we, we know that most users of VPNs in China and others are uh, businesses and academics, uh, and all of that helps contribute to economic growth. We're willing to kind of let that happen 
but we want it, you know, we want it recorded. We want to know where people are uh, in case there is some kind of usage for uh, organizing and uh, protests. So uh, China is obviously the most thoughtful, if you can put it that way, the most determined uh, about how to build an alternative to the mechanisms that the U.S. Uh, thought were inevitable. Uh, uh, but um, in terms of building border, rebuilding borders in cyberspace, it's, it's hard to find a jurisdiction that hasn't built new localization incentives or uh, requirements into uh, 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 their law, uh, and that that really raises the question: uh, uh, What sort of world order is emerging as we relocalize a lot of uh, things that had been part of the global open yada yada uh, from the nineties? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you, as you talked about in your opening, right, with. Um, uh, with with Spain in the sense of you know who who has jurisdiction over the data and that we see lots of people lots of countries want to have access to that data uh, sometimes for legitimate purposes sometimes for illegitimate purposes uh, sometimes they have have a kind of uh, neo mercantilist market focus they think somehow storing the data at home is going to create companies but I think for most of them it's just the law enforcement wants access to it. Uh, and we know uh, that the MLAT process is 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 pretty broken, um, and we don't have any mechanisms for sharing data quickly across borders. So for law enforcement, so you know, I think we we're, we're going to see that. I think what's going to happen is is that if you're a big country, you 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 have a lot more influence, right? Um, you know, there's a reason why Amazon and others have said, oh yeah, we're, we're building data centers in in Europe and Germany and other places because the markets are there. You know, if you're Bolivia, uh, I think it's unlikely that you're going to be able to create a uh, force one of the big companies to, to set up a data center there. Yeah, I think that's right. And then the Bolivians need to decide whether they trust the Brazilians more than they trust the Americans, because those are their choices. Uh, um, so if if that's the case, if we're going, we're rebuilding borders, sort of at least as speed bumps or curbs, if not uh, as Firm uh, uh, walls. Uh, a, what does that mean about the U.S.? Uh, it's obvious that China has persuaded a lot of Jello to climb the wall and stay there, right? Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, that means that China and probably the Russians and certainly the Europeans have found ways to force. U.S. companies to do locally what uh, the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese want. But there's no reason why they have to stop there. They could just say, yeah, we're going to make American companies do what we want inside the United States as well. And I wondered if you're starting to see signs of that. Yeah, we have, we've had the, we had the one case, right, with, with LinkedIn, right, which, you know, has a Chinese version and a U.S. version. Um, and in that case... You know, they, they've always said, yes, we're going to censor certain posts within China. But there was a case where uh, I think it was, uh, in fact, it was Bill Bishop, who's a fairly widely known uh, tech analyst. Uh, a post that he made in China was censored both in China and globally, which was not how it was supposed to work. By LinkedIn. You know, That's right. I remember that. And LinkedIn quickly apologized and said that this wasn't going to happen. Um you know, I, I think so far, and I think that's why a lot of people also were were um, uh, upset that the U.S. didn't 
do more about the great canon uh, episode with with um, GitHub and 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 say, you know, look, if you censoring your own web cyberspace is one thing, exerting influence outside of China is a whole different story. Um, so I, I think it is a it is a possibility. Um, I think the companies would, you know, certainly face a public backlash. They may decide it's worth it market-wise anyway. But I think right now they're going to get squeezed in the U.S. too about it just from a PR perspective. So uh, China and Russia might be slow to do this. I'm not sure I see the same constraints on the Europeans. Um, in you know, one of the interesting things that is, has emerged is as we're starting to worry about how to counter violent extremism and the ISIS message. Um, the Europeans have an answer. They call it all hate, hate speech, and they yeah. make the companies responsible for getting it off their systems or responding to it, etc. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that they are happy to lean on uh, U.S. companies uh, to uh, uh, prevent uh, um, violent extremist uh, rhetoric on U.S. sites um, that might be accessible from uh, from Europe. Um, and once once the idea that uh, you can sort of Mau Mau people into uh, uh, changing their standards for what speech is permissible. Uh, it's pretty easy for the Chinese and the Russians to play that game too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we could see actually in the the first meeting of the cybersecurity working group between the the DHS and the and the MPS, the Ministry of Public Security. Uh, in the write up of that meeting, one of the things the Chinese said they want to talk about at the next meeting is. Uh, what they call cyber terrorism. Um, and so, of course, the U.S. and China, you know, have a shared interest in, you know, stopping uh, Inspire from explaining how you create an IED or a, um, uh, a oven bomb or something. But the Chinese are going to say that a Uyghur activist uh, at Indiana University who's encouraging greater uh, uh, independence for Xinjiang is a splitist and a terrorist. Um, so, and so we're quickly going to we're quickly going to hit that that wall of what do we mean by terrorism? Yeah, I I think that's right. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that you know that the Chinese and the Russians have built these armies of trolls, the 50 cent army, designed to jump into uh, discussions that they don't think uh, are socially productive, or at least not friendly to the government, uh, and turn it into a, just a morass of uh, uh, nasty comments back and forth, so you just don't want to read it anymore, right? Uh, and so uh, the tools for shaping opinion uh, it, it can be that can be used to fight terrorism can also be used to fight, uh, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, for that matter, right? Uh, and I wonder if uh, you've got a good feel for uh, how much the army of trolls has actually been marched into the U.S. territory already. Well, on the, on the Chinese side, um, we, we certainly saw it uh, on Twitter and, and around the time that uh, a lot of Tibetan activists were setting themselves on fire, right? We saw a massive kind of uh, Twitter trolling on any debate on uh, conditions in Tibet. Uh, it's been pretty quiet since then, although there was some stuff around the Taiwanese uh, elections. The Russians, of course, have been much, much busier, right? We saw 
you know, what seemed to be Russian activity around Ferguson and other kind of rumors and stuff that were, were clearly meant to kind of create um, some type of, you know, panic or chaos uh, in the United in the United States. Um, the Russians seem to have adopted as a much broader tool uh, externally as a foreign policy tool, right? Is um, you know, confuse and disorient and basically just spread as much falsehoods out there as you as you can, uh, especially into Europe, right? When you're when you're having these discussions, the Chinese seem to be more focused, kind of uh, internally and guiding the the discussion and debate. Um, but you know, occasionally you'll see somebody. Um, on a negative story about China, about you know how great Xi Jinping is, and you know this person's a racist and they don't understand China. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I am struck by is that uh, these Twitter armies, the Fifty Cent armies, the trolls, uh, uh, in a lot of cases they appear to be partially or completely independent of the government uh, and uh, uh, the government has used them I, I the Russians if I remember had this very elaborate sting in which they tried to persuade Americans that there'd been a big gas explosion somewhere in Louisiana and they were testing the uh, um, the response uh, of the government to that uh, uh, incident um, so they've been pretty aggressive at having an impact inside the U.S. Uh, and and that has led me to think seriously about the claim that uh, we shouldn't allow the private sector ever to do anything outside of their own network to protect themselves. And the usual best argument uh, for cutting off that opportunity is the claim that, well, what if you did that and it took you outside of the United States? Uh, how would other governments react? And I, I kind of feel as though other governments have already established the norm that they're going to spend a lot of time in our networks screwing with us uh, uh, and letting their their militias and their uh, independent actors screw with us. And I wonder whether that wouldn't make them kind of understanding or at least allow us to demand understanding if they start uh, uh, doing the same thing, if we uh, find that our uh, companies are starting to do more outside of their networks. Yeah, I guess I, you know, I'm, I'm still one of those. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you use the word whining this time, but you know, I'm still. One I'm, of those I'm glad. I'm glad. To, I'm glad to call the, the, them whiners. Uh, and uh, and I and, and if you want to associate yourself with that view, uh, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still one of those people that I, I don't think it's a great. I still don't think it's a great idea. I, I think it's a different quality of of, of uh, um, interference, and I guess it also just depends on what kind of scenarios you're focusing on, right? The scenario that motivates me, right, is a um, is a South China Sea uh, uh, incident where you know we we a Chinese naval naval vessel and a U.S. naval vessel ram into each other, um, and then all of a sudden we have all of these uh, hackers in each other's networks, um, and a U.S. firm who's going after a Chinese firm. Uh, is trying to destroy a router or a computer, and that, and that causes a situation that we're not really interested in having as we're trying to control escalation and signaling. Um, so I, I have a, you know, that's the kind of worry that I have, that once you turn the U.S. companies loose, that, that you start having damage. You know, the, 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 the story about, you know, people spreading lies and rumors and networks, it seems to me to be less worrying, but I just, I'm afraid of what happens when we have a real kinetic crisis that we want to make sure that the signals are being sent 
are the right ones. Well, fair enough, although I think it's not unreasonable to, to say what are our peers or near peers doing to, to discipline their uh, armies of trolls, and I think the answer right now is damn little. Uh, yeah. uh, and that would argue for us to say, well, you know, um, there are consequences to deciding that you're going to use uh, uh, militias in cyberspace, and one possibility is that we will allow our private sector to do more, uh, you know, suck it up. Yeah, it's true. It's definitely true. But there were, you know, in the, in the late 90s, right, we certainly had more patriotic hacking between the U.S. and China, for example, right, with the, when the uh, Belgrade bombing and the uh, EP3 plane incident, there was a lot more stuff going on. I do think that the Chinese did rein a lot of that in, but, you know, they're clearly happy to use proxies for espionage uh, and the theft of intellectual property. Uh, we have to wait and see, right, they just announced these new strategic support forces, which could theoretically lead to some consolidation and greater control. But I, I think their mindset, along with the Russians, is is that proxies are a good use. Uh, they make sense, and they're going to continue to use them. All right. Uh, uh, Adam Segal, The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. Uh, Adam, before we finish up, we always like to uh, uh, give our guests an opportunity to promote any upcoming speaking engagements. Uh, uh, it's a fine book, and it really uh, tells us exactly where we are uh, in the uh, uh, decline from the 90s idealism to uh, uh, the 2010s um, very commercial realism about uh, uh, borders and control in cyberspace. Uh, is there anything uh, uh, you're going to be doing other than selling the book? Do you have any public appearances? we should know about? Uh, yeah, actually, on the 28th, I'll be speaking uh, at the Hoover uh, Institute in D.C. as part of the Lawfare series. Uh, oh, great. Uh, um, uh, so that's, I think, it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the time, but it's uh, the 28th of Monday. Uh, it's, in it's, in the, it's in the evening, if I remember right. Yeah, 5.30. I want to say 5.30 or 6. I can't remember which. All right. Well, we're we're, we're trading. We're, I think we're trading speakers. Uh, you're going there after appearing on the podcast, and then uh, uh, General Hayden, who has already done uh, one for Lawfare, uh, one of their soirees, is going to be on uh, our program uh, 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 shortly. The, the cyber equivalent of the Borscht Belt. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Maury Schenk uh, and Alan Cohn, as well as Adam. Uh, uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send us uh, notes at uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or uh, leave a phone message at uh, 202-862-5785. Uh, we're always glad to get uh Good um, reviews on iTunes, uh, and we will be on iTunes until Tim Cook discovers that we are. Uh, this has been Episode 107 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming up, uh, we've got uh, Perry Ann Boring of the Ch Chamber of Digital Commerce, Suzanne Spaulding, the Undersecretary for DHS's Cybersecurity uh, uh, Directorate, and as I said, General Mike Hayden, uh, who headed both the CIA and the NSA and whose book, Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, is a, is a great read. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.